0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, October the 20th, 2023, the end of another rather disturbing week, although not all the news is bad. Uh, Earlier this week, we did two interesting shows, with a couple of leading american journalists Jonah sarah and uh bethany McLean, they're the co-authors of a new book the big fail what the pandemic revealed about who america protects and who it leaves behind the title is rather pessimistic but their message wasn't entirely bad uh, in their coverage of uh the pandemic they suggested that the good news was that scientists worked together to create a vaccine uh, in remarkably short time. And there was a degree of uh, miraculousness about the process with which uh, science addressed the crisis of COVID. Uh, This collaborative nature of science is uh, uh, something that we're going to talk about today with my guest Lorraine Daston. She's the author of Rivals, How Scientists Learned to cooperate. Uh, she's one of America's leading historians of scientists. She's talking to us from Berlin. Uh, Lorraine, would you agree with uh, Nasera McLean? Does the, the, the collaborative nature of, uh, of, 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 of establishing the vaccine for COVID? Is that exhibit A in your argument about the collaborative nature of science and scientists?
1: It is, is, as is, I think, the collective scientific response to the problem of climate change, both in the diagnosis of the problem and the tracking of its progress. as Progress is the word we want. And I should say that that kind of collaboration doesn't come naturally to scientists who are, by nature, almost by necessity, fiercely competitive. So the fact that um, in a real emergency... They were able to pull themselves together and come up i think miraculous is entirely in place miraculously come up with an effective vaccination against a new and potentially deadly virus strain is extraordinary but it's the work of about 300 years of trying and failing
0: those 300 years would you categorize them in historical terms as the beneficial consequences of the scientific enlightenment how bound up in 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 that enlightenment is this collaborative scientific endeavor
1: certainly the first attempt if you will was very much part of the scientific enlightenment um the first attempt at a globe-spanning international scientific collaboration occurred in 1761 and 1769. Those are the years of the transits of Venus and um, the transits of Venus are an occasion, a rare occasion for astronomers to get a kind of absolute fix on the scale of the solar system. But like eclipses, you have to have um, a dispersed, a far flung network of observers and um, with a great deal, it must be said, of um, creaking and cranking of machinery and many missteps and occasional real hostilities. So for example, France and Britain were at war at this time and one of the French astronomical expeditions was attacked several times by um, British, the British Navy. Um, the observations nonetheless were taken. So that was at least a noble first attempt. Unfortunately, the coordination failed to standardize the instruments or the observing time, so the observations in the end were so divergent as to be useless.
0: You're a historian of scientists and i'm I'm guessing, Lorraine, sympathetic to the sensibility, the scientific sensibility. What attracts people to uh, the scientific vocation—it always seems to me, as an amateur—and please correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm making generalizations—that a certain type of person, perhaps a little fairer, a little bit more generous, are attracted to uh, the uh, the sciences. Is that fair?
1: I I must say, speaking as a historian, of course, not as an observer of present science, um, that there are as many human types on exhibit amongst the scientists as there are in any other random sampling of the population. I do not think that scientists are, for example, more virtuous, in your words, fairer. Um, I do think that the attraction often is one of passionate curiosity. But passionate curiosity for a certain object of inquiry, that is, the same people who become astronomers do not become virologists, for example. So um, if there is a, a streak, a character streak, which attracts people to science, it's um, really a rainbow colored streak because it, it calms on to very different objects, very different elective affinities.
0: I'm not sure if I was saying that they're more virtuous. It's, it's more the ability, a discipline, a self-discipline, to separate themselves from their subject. You're, as I said, one of America's leading historians of science. Uh, you, you, you've you, you you've worked at many of America's leading universities. Now you're based in Berlin. What do you make of the, the critique the the, the the sort of the new school critique of science as a manifestation of power. Uh, I, someone like Michel Foucault comes to mind, but there seems to be a whole discipline focused on this kind of critique.
1: You know, I must say, um, when I hear the word power, my mind goes blank and my stomach growls because I'm never really sure what is meant by that word. If what is meant by that word that science in our society exercise authority. Yes, in that sense, they have power, but they don't have um, political power. And as we saw, um, alas, during the pandemic, um, suspicions that they do exercise political power um, are often met with a very severe backlash. So I think that 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 view about science is curiously flat, and one dimensional. Um, I think most scientists, it's very rare for scientists, for example, to go into politics And I don't think that that's an accident, as opposed if one took, for example, other professions like um, lawyers or even even doctors. Um, It's it's rare for scientists. I can think of one or two examples in the House of Representatives, for example, in the last 20 or 30 years. So I don't think there's any attraction for power in the usual political sense. There is, of course, um, an interest in power within their own disciplines. That's an entirely different matter.
0: We're speaking with Lorraine Daston, the author of an interesting new book called *Rivals: uh, How Scientists Learned to Cooperate*. It's just out. It's one of her many books. Uh, Lorraine, we had—I'm uh, sure you're familiar with the work of—you're uh, you, uh, you're familiar with the work of uh, Avi Loeb, um, a, a very controversial scientist at Harvard. Uh, He's been on the show several times, um, and he's the author of Interstellar. He's created a great deal of controversy. There are still troublesome scientists, aren't there, today? Not everyone cooperates, and and there isn't always a culture of cooperation, uh, especially in some of the more, shall we say, um, lucrative science.
1: Yes, that's absolutely true, and it was always true. Um, As I said, it took 300 years to create um, a very fragile scientific polity, um, which now calls itself the scientific community, which more or less works. And it's it's always in danger of um, shocks both from the inside and the outside. Um, Commercial ventures involving science are one possible source that could undermine the internal incentives of science. Um, And of course, vaulting ambition is another.
0: We're speaking, as I said, with uh, Lorraine Daston, the author of a very interesting new book. I want to thank our sponsor, Liberty, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, another uh, publication very much dedicated to explaining the complexity of the world. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back to talk more with Lorraine Daston, the author of Rivals. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with uh, Lorraine Daston, the author of a very interesting new book, uh, Rivals, How Scientists Learned to Cooperate. Uh Lorraine, your book got a nice review in the, uh, in the LA uh, Review of Books, but one uh, critique was that scientists haven't always been good at, at acknowledging inequality.
1: How would you respond to that critique? First of all, I think it's a fair critique. I think that scientists um, have always understood their polity, their their Republic of letters, their scientific community to be a form of meritocracy, really a form of alternative aristocracy um, but it's a, an aristocracy in which they define the terms of merit, not of birth, um, but of um, of achievement of scientific achievement. and It is definitely um, a a form of inquiry which is run by its elites. However, I would say that if you look across the academic disciplines, the sciences have been much more open to old fashioned social mobility than Mm. the humanities or the social sciences have. Um, I recently, this past Monday gave a talk at a research institute for cell biology and genetics to the postdocs there. There were postdocs from every corner of the earth. I wish that I could say the same for my own research institute, that we had such um, a diverse sampling of young scholars as well as young scientists. So although I absolutely take the point of the reviewer, um, this is a steeply hierarchical form of social organization. I also think that when one compares it to other forms of academic inquiry, it does fairly well.
0: Why do you think that is? Uh, A cynic might suggest that science is hard And the social sciences and the humanities are are, are much easier which enables elites to succeed but but not everyone can succeed doesn't matter how wealthy your parents are how many fancy schools you've gone to doesn't make you a good scientist how would you explain the difference between sciences and um and, and and the humanities uh and social sciences in terms of that uh, accessibility and elitism?
1: You know, it's a really interesting question. And I can only speculate here. I mean, I think this is something that would require a study in its own right. So here would be, Maybe even a
0: book, Lorraine. Who knows?
1: Right. Yet another book. Um, but I think one thing is that the humanities are often drawing upon familial cultural capital. And it's really striking if you look at the ranks of American scientists um, that. Many of them come from immigrant backgrounds um, mm. who, who may have had a very different cultural capital, but not the cultural capital, which is usually the um, seedbed for the humanities. I wouldn't say that the scientists and sciences are necessarily harder. What I think, for example, of certain forms of philology, um, the requirement of the mastery of some very technical and difficult ancient languages, for example. Um, but those, too, require many years of study And it is often the case that schools barely offer one foreign language, much less um, several exotic ancient languages like Sanskrit, for example, or classical Arabic. So um, what's really needed, however, is um, schools which offer um, decent math courses, because math courses are the one thing where you really do need to build on for the sciences. And during, of course, the 70s and 80s, after the Sputnik shock in 1957, the United States invested an enormous amount in science and math education at the high school level and reaped the benefits of that. That meant that Um, kids coming in from very different backgrounds were able to profit from a first-class education in science and the math um, at public schools. I was certainly the beneficiary of that. Um, I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. Um, And perhaps it requires also, as a precondition, an investment like that in public education.
0: So we need another Sputnik moment, Lorraine. Uh, How did you benefit from that original Sputnik
1: moment, personally? I had... I went to a very large and not very good public high school um, in Maryland in the United United States. But I had absolutely first class biology, physics, chemistry and math teachers. Were Um, you
0: ever attracted? I mean, you're a historian of science. How do scientists treat you? Do they take you seriously? Were you ever attracted to the hard sciences yourself?
1: Yes, very much so. Um, And in college, um took courses in math and astronomy. Um, yes, I, 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 think, I think scientists have a very um, ambivalent relationship toward historians of science. On, on the one hand sometimes they view us as something like the equivalent of court bards and they very much hope that we will sing their praises. Um, historians of science as you might imagine are not particularly pleased to be cast in that role Um, On the other hand, they find our fascination with the dead ends and blind alleys of science to be frustrating. They want the success stories. They want um, the romantic, heroic biographies, even though they must know in their heart of hearts that what makes science successful is that it's a collective effort. So it's a relationship in which both sides, I, the other, with some suspicion, albeit um, mutual dependence.
0: Lorraine, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, from Silicon Valley. Technology now uh, is very controversial. Some of the big tech companies are seen as being oppressive. Many smart scientific minds in, in the U.S. and around the world have to make a choice between going into private companies or going into research Do you think that there is a big difference between the kind of technologists and scientists who work at big tech companies like Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Apple and the kind of scientists who work in uh, public research institutions?
1: I I don't know whether there is... I I can't speak to whether or not there's any difference in motivation, in um, talent... But I do think there's probably a difference in incentives. I completely understand why a really bright young person who's done very well in science courses in college might be attracted to one of the tech companies because that's the happening place at the moment. It's where, in some ways, the most exciting new science is being done. What? would worry me if I were um, a scientist um, in one of those university departments is that the motivations, once you're within such a firm, are no longer the motivations of academic research. So norms of open publication, for example, um, are no longer honored, understandably, in a private company which treats such research as intellectual property potentially lucrative intellectual property. It's always been the case that science has been subject to those kinds of pressures. It was extremely difficult to get scientists in the 17th century to publish openly. There was a very strong temptation to hoard one's discoveries, if only to trade them like like baseball cards for somebody else's scientific discoveries. this the ethos of open publication upon which scientific collaboration depends is potentially undermined when too much of the best scientific talent is diverted into commercial channels
0: in silicon valley people often use the the concept of open source and collaboration to mask private selfish interest has that always been the case was the idea of open source science, to, to, to take a phrase, was that always peddled in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century as a marks for some scientists and some scientific and technological companies to pursue their own
1: interests? Yes, but interests perhaps in a somewhat different sense. There, there certainly are examples, of course, especially after the middle of the 19th century, when we get the first science-based industries, the coal, tar, derivative industries, and optical glass, um, of... Science for industrial gain. But long before then, um, what the currency of the realm in science was recognition, glory, and not just recognition by the public at large, but rather recognition by those who were competent to judge the magnitude of one's achievements. What we now call peers, a word which is of course redolent of aristocratic associations. So scientists were always rivals for that kind of esteem which could only be accorded by one's rivals. Um, Your Nobel Prize is somebody else's missed Nobel Prize, this is a scarce resource. So there was always a tension between wanting to hoard one's discoveries until one had milked them, for example, for all they were worth, and publishing them in order to have that recognition by one's peers for one's achievement. And in some sense, that tension has never been resolved.
0: I wonder whether your book should be required reading Uh, Lorraine arrivals how scientists learn to cooperate for the AI community huge debate open AI Microsoft Google many companies claiming to collaborate but probably not doing so what could the AI people learn from from rivals how scientists learn to cooperate and are you concerned that AI is a particularly corrosive um, endeavor which might undermine so much of what we've achieved, scientifically and otherwise.
1: You know, to the extent that it creates um, an a, alternative set of values, yes, I would be concerned, and let me explain what I mean by that. Um, at the outset, we talked a moment about whether or not scientists are more virtuous than other people, and the answer is no, human nature is human nature, but um, it is the case that scientists have been socialized into a very specific and specialized set of virtues. Open publication, sharing of data, for example, is one of those virtues. Um, Honesty is another of those virtues. Um, A certain um, ability to try to detach, this is never possible entirely, but it's better to approximate it than not to try, um, to try to detach yourself from your pet hypothesis um, in looking at whether or not that hy- pet hypothesis is confirmed or falsified by the data. Those are, those are very um, specific um, values and you can tell their real values because when they're violated, scientists become indignant. And usually indignation is a good proxy for a real value. Um, my sense is that members of the AI community are not being socialized in those values. And insofar as there is a kind of bleed through, as there ought to be, um, between the AI community and the scientific community, I would worry about, as I say, the always delicate balance between rivalry and cooperation within science. Lorraine, do you think we can teach
0: machines to be collaborative? Uh, the, the, the cult of collaboration is one that gets peddled in Silicon Valley, and of course, Silicon Valley is inventing now generative AI, which is transforming the world. Would you trust an AI which claimed to be collaborative that replicated your scientific endeavor?
1: Yeah, I I mean, in some ways I would trust, um, if in my case, um, an AI program to verify my footnotes, which would be the equivalent, Um, in part because the AI has one advantage um, over one's human colleagues, which is it has no ego. So, in that sense, um, in the same way that one might feel that um, AI programs, for example, in human resources, might be less biased than human beings who are um, screening employees. Um, The question is, however, competence, not just lack of um, nefarious biases or motivations, but competence. And that's another question. I'm not sure that. Um, ChatGPT or even ChatGPT4 has demonstrated that kind of competence.
0: You began the conversation, Lorraine, suggesting that there were two areas which manifest uh, what you're arguing in the book um, about how scientists have learned to cooperate. The first was COVID, the second was climate change. Um, On the COVID front, I want to get to, to, to climate, but on the COVID front, what about the interests of private companies how how does that work and how did it work with covid because after all some people got very rich with uh in in the covid times in terms of finding a vaccine some companies made enormous profits how does the the capitalism piece fit into this
1: yes it's absolutely true um and one has to also say that there was um, a kind of Los Alamos project aspect to, in the United States, for example, um, Operation Warp Speed, in which billions of dollars were thrown at companies, pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer. Um, So it worked, but um, it worked at enormous cost, and perhaps with a, a devil's bargain, a Faustian bargain, in terms of the enormous profits. But I would say that there were other vaccinations um, developed, um, which were explicitly not developed for profit. I'm thinking of the Oxford vaccine, the AstraZeneca um, Mm. vaccine. Um, So another model was possible. And um, it was not, in the end, as successful as the mRNA vaccinations, but it was quite successful enough um, so that it's not inevitable that one has to have this kind of um, capitalism on steroids model in order to get something done.
0: Lorraine, you mentioned Los Alamos. Did Have you seen the Oppenheimer movie?
1: I have. It's, it's de rigueur for all historians of science.
0: I think it was accurate, uh, and does it reflect your argument? I had Richard Rhodes, very prominent science writer. Yes,
1: yeah. Got a new
0: book out on E.O. Wilson, but of course he wrote the book on the development of, of the atomic Bomb. And I asked him in the interview whether the movie was accurate. And he said that Oppenheimer actually was a lot less collaborative in reality than he is represented uh, in the movie. It, it, you're not—I know you're not an expert on on Los Alamos or Oppenheimer, but do you think it was a little sweet, a little saccharine in terms of the the treatment of it of, of, of the scientific collaborative endeavor?
1: I think um, from all I've read and. I, like everyone else, is very much indebted to Richard Rhodes here. Um, The movie has exactly the kind of plot line that historians of science object to in many scientific biographies, and the title says it all. It's focused on one person, Oppenheimer. Mm. And although we get a taste of um, something of the collaborative life um, and the prickly- personalities of someone like Edward Teller, for example, at Los Alamos, we really don't get a sense of the full collaboration. Um, We know that, for example, massive calculations had to be done for this project. And this in an age in which um, electric computers are still a glimmer in the eye of John von Neumann. Um, And a lot of those calculations are being done by the wives of these scientists. Um, So there are, there were many, many layers of collaboration which were needed to make this project work. Obviously, for a movie which is meant to be a box office blockbuster, um, that is perhaps difficult to convey, but it's simply, once again, um, a hijacking of what is a collective story to make it into a heroic biography.
0: Yeah, and the heroism of Oppenheimer was contrasted not just with, with Teller, uh, but also with politics and the, the reality of political life, which is very different from science. Let's end with this split, this historic split between science and politics. Uh, you noted at the beginning that you thought that, that the collaborative nature of climate, uh, climate science was another example of how scientists have worked together. Um, But they haven't achieved much, have they, on the science front? They may have come up with a vaccine for COVID. They certainly haven't come up with a vaccine for saving the planet.
1: No, but one could argue that they haven't been given much of a chance. That is, the political will which mobilized... Um, the forces both of science, but also, as you said, of the pharmaceutical companies, and of course, governments funding, bankrolling all of the research, um, has yet to be turned to the problem of climate change. Um, If We have yet to see whether or not if governments threw the same amount of money they threw at developing vaccinations during the pandemic, at solving the problems of climate change, what the result would be.
0: What has to happen, Lorraine? Miami to be swept away? Half of America or half of East Asia to burn down?
1: Actually, I I mean, I hope it doesn't come to that. Um, I think actually the world's insurance companies could play Mm. a seminal role here. Um, If insurance companies stopped insuring these places, if within the United States, FEMA, which offers lower than market rates for insurance for homeowners in floodplains, would stop doing this, perhaps we might see a change.